It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Memorial Day. I hope you're having a special day and find some time to do with your family and salute the military. Special segment coming your way. One of the finest commanders we've had in this generation of warfighters, William McRaven, coming up. He's going to talk about his book, The Hero Code, Lessons Learned from Lives Well Lived, not just in the military, other places, things that he's experienced, people he has read about, and hopefully inspire you and help get that code of ethics to make your life better. Meanwhile, before we get started in the interview, I'll start the way we really started, and that is to talk about what was in the news and what remains in the news, and that is the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Donald Trump, no question, put President Biden in a tough position Uh, And that is he's committed to getting the 2,500 troops out of Afghanistan. And now Joe Biden has to decide what he's going to do. Well, he decided to pull them all out by 9-11. They're almost all out, even though they've been slightly delayed. So as we begin the interview with Admiral William McRaven, we begin here first with Joe Biden announcing his plans for Afghanistan. Osama bin Laden was gone. That was 10 years ago. Think about that. We delivered justice to bin Laden a decade ago, and we've stayed in Afghanistan for a decade since. Since then, our reasons for remaining in Afghanistan have become increasingly unclear. Not according to many in the military, including uh, General Milley, who's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the the study done by Joe Dunford about the positives by staying in the area, even with a small presence. How does Admiral William McRaven feel about it? One of the most respected military men in the country, retired U.S. Navy uh, four-star admiral, author of of another great book, The Hero Code, Lessons Learned from Lives Well Lived, which we're going to get into. But, Admiral, this news came out yesterday. It was not a big surprise. Welcome back, and what do you think about the president's decision? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, great to join you. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, the, the uh, Biden administration came to the same conclusion that the Trump administration did, which is, you know, we're not going to be able to have a military solution to the problems in, in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, as a military leader, you know, at the end of the day, you just want to make sure your voice is heard. And I have it from very, very good sources that everybody from General Scott Miller, who is the ISAF commander, uh, to General Frank McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander, and, of course, Mark Milley and Secretary Austin, all four men who have extensive experience in Afghanistan, had a chance to sit down and talk to the president and, and express their concerns and lay out all the risks. So what I know is that the president absolutely understands the risks that he and the country are assuming by, by leaving Afghanistan. Um, but he has made that decision. And I know from the military leaders I've talked to, uh, you know, we're a professional military. We're going to salute smartly and and move out. So now that you're retired, what does Admiral McRaven think about that? Since you know, and your intelligence or a phone call away or a text away to find out what's really happening on the ground. And you know that uh, where the the attack on 9-11 20 years ago came from. And you know, there's Al-Qaeda and ISIS presence there today. And the Taliban's presence is increasing. And they haven't really had a... Uh, they haven't really had a change of mindset. Uh, they're Sharia law-centric, uh, anti-women, and they're never going to reject al-Qaeda. Yeah, so, I mean, remember the reason we went, we went into Afghanistan, of course, was to ensure that uh, al-Qaeda did not have a safe haven uh, in Afghanistan supported by the Taliban. So when you think about the last uh, 20 years, uh, we were successful in that aspect of the mission. No question about it. Uh, So now, if I'm a military leader and somebody says to me, look, here's the risks we're going to have to deal with. If we pull out of Afghanistan, 
there will be a resurgent Taliban. Uh, we will have to be concerned about Al Qaeda coming back into safe uh, and establishing safe havens. I would tell them I can handle the Taliban safe haven issue. You give me the resources, give me the latitude to do my mission, and I will be able to have drones overhead. I will be able to have intelligence assets uh, on the ground. I will ensure that we have a quick re uh, reaction uh, team available. I will ensure that we have a combat air patrol available. So I think we can manage the terrorism threat. And of course, the Taliban have never been an existential threat to the United States. The Taliban have, I mean, the Al-Qaeda have been that threat that concerned us the most. So as we pull out the, the 2,500 guys, and then I'm sure the allies will follow us, again, if I'm a commander and you're giving me the mission, I can find out a way to keep, uh, keep Al-Qaeda at bay. Where are you? Where's your base? Yeah, well, again, you've got to negotiate that. But remember, nowadays, the, the drones that we have, and I won't go into the, into the exact specifics, but they've got a long dwell time, right? They've got a long dwell time, so you could base them at a number of places in the region and still set up an orbit to maintain a 24-hour coverage of a particular region. This is not out of the realm of the possible. In terms of the aircraft support, you know, you put a carrier battle group uh, in the, the Gulf of Oman, you've got the reach, uh, you can come up the air corridor in Pakistan. So there are ways to do this. Now, let me be clear to your audience. Are there risks? Oh, you're absolutely right. There are risks. Look at All Iraq. Things, what's that? Look at Iraq. We were yeah, back there again, in two I, years. You bet. And, and so I'm hoping, and, I, and my expectation is we have learned from Iraq. And so our ability to keep an eye on the movement in Afghanistan is going to be critical. And again, I don't want your listeners to think that I don't think the risks out there. You bet there are. Will there be a resurgent Taliban? There will. And I think the, uh, the Ghani government is going to have to ensure that the 350,000 Afghan national security forces that we trained are thinking about this and preparing to deal with the Taliban. Are there going to be threats to the women? There are. But, you know, when countries are under threat, uh, you know, they're just going to have to fight for, for their you know, living standard that they want. They're going to have to fight for their democracy. They're going to have to fight for what they want. Uh, we can help them in that regard. But at the end of the day, the Afghans uh, are going to have to step up and do some of this. But I do think that there are risks involved in pulling out of Afghanistan. I don't, I don't question that at all. The intel summary uh, shows that. My point is, if I'm a military commander and given the task of ensuring that al-Qaeda is no longer a threat or is not a threat coming out of Afghanistan, I think I can manage that if you give me the resources to do the job. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, 2000 guys, we have not lost a guy this year, thankfully two guys last right. year. So it's not like it's a hot fight and we're not looking to do the 70,000 that general Petraeus right. was asked to bring in. I was just going to read you Petraeus's comments. He said, I'm afraid that we're going to look back in two years from now and regret the decision. He goes on. I think we need to be really careful about the rhetoric because ending us involvement in the endless war doesn't end the endless war. It just ends our involvement. I fear that this war is going to get worse. So I know you respect General yep. David Petraeus. Very much so. And, and again, Brian, I, I would not dismiss his assessment at all. And I'm not saying that. Uh, as I said, the risks are out there. What I'm telling you is, from a senior military standpoint, if, if a Mark Milley and a Lloyd Austin and, and Frank McKenzie and Scott Miller have the chance to sit down with our civilian leaders and say, Mr. President, here are the problems you're going to have to address. Here's what's going to happen if we leave and the president makes that decision, then again, as a military, we have an obligation to say, sir, we got it. You've heard our voice, and now let's move out and, and do the best we can. And I know they will try to do that. Again, will it be easy? 
<laughs> no, it will not. Are uh, General Petraeus' concerns valid? You bet they are. But we're moving forward. Uh, you know, there, there's no point in looking back now. Let's look forward and figure out how to, uh, again, how to solve the problem. That's what we do in the military. All right. So, General, you, you went out to um, make your bed was a bestseller, number one bestseller forever. Everyone's reading it. They, they kind of <laughs> spun off your commencement speech at the University of Texas. So you came out the hero code. And it's not just about a bunch of great store military stories. It's about how to show values and integrity to kind of guide you through life. So you did it through telling stories, arguably the best way to do it. And di- different things that you try to get across. Number one, you talk about being humble. I'm going to just bring you to some of the stories and we can kind of move through it to give people an idea of why this book is so special. You say be humble. You tell the story of being at a dinner party and looking across and seeing this kind of quiet guy. Uh, he ends up being an astronaut, the last one to walk on the moon. But how did he hold himself? Yeah, you know, I will tell you, uh, Brian, if folks like to make your bed, they're, they're going to love the hero code. Uh, it's kind of of the same sort of uh, construct. But this was remarkable. So, I mean, I go to this dinner party uh, and I'm sitting around the table and I'm chatting with this fellow for about an hour and a half. And, uh, and he's probably in his early 80s. He and his wife are there and they are just lovely. And I'm trying to, you know, kind of find out a little bit, bit about him. I find out he's in the Air Force. And I said, well, you know, my father was in the Air Force. My son was, is in the Air Force. And all he wants to do is talk about me and my family. He wants to know about my kids. He wants to know, you know, where my wife and I met. And, all. and, uh, and it isn't until after the dinner party that uh, Roger Staubach, the, uh, the Hall of Fame quarterback from the Dallas Cowboys, who was with us, comes up to me and he says, uh, hey, I see you were talking to Charlie. I said, yeah, yeah, seems like a real nice guy. And Staubach says, can you imagine that? And I said, well, what are you talking about, Roger? He said, can you imagine that? Can you imagine walking on the moon? And it then occurred to me, this was General Charles Duke, the youngest man ever to walk on the moon. And never once in that hour and a half conversation, did he mention that little tiny fact that he walked on the moon? But to your point, his humility did not come easy. You know, he comes back from the moon. He's a celebrity. He became a Christian. His wife became a Christian. He followed her, and he learned the value of humility. And today, he is just one of the gentlest, finest uh, men I've ever spent time with. Another example of hope. You talk about a mission to free POWs, and by the time they got there for this mission, they had been moved. Uh, and you thought, wow, what a wasted mission. How does that play into hope? Yeah, you know, I had the opportunity, I think back in 2005, uh, to meet with the Sante Raiders. And, uh, and of course, the great Texan, uh, Ross Perot, used to host uh, these guys every year. So uh, Sante was a POW camp. Uh, Green Beret went in to try to rescue these guys. As they get to the Sante camp, it turns out the North Vietnamese had moved the, uh, the prisoners earlier. And the Green Beret come back, and, and for years they thought, yeah, again, it was a failed mission until the POWs were released in 1975. And the story the POWs told was, you gave us hope. You gave us hope when we were sitting in another POW camp because when they, the POWs heard about the raid and the, and the guys in the Hanoi Hilton heard about the raid and they said, we knew we had not been forgotten. And, he, and they said that hope is what sustained us until we were finally released because we knew that, the, that America had not forgotten us and we're trying to do everything to rescue us. Hope is the most powerful force in the world, and we see it time and time again. And that was a, a great story in, in talking to some of these POWs. A great friend of our show is Gary Sinise, and he talked about General Abizade in a high-tensity <laughs> uh, meeting with all the higher-up in command. Was it Iraq or Afghanistan? Iraq, right? A- Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Afghanistan, my bad. Yeah. And in comes this guy he didn't recognize. What was his request, and what did you get from this story? 
Yeah, so we're having dinner with all these uh, generals and admirals. General John Abizade, the CENTCOM commander, is there. And in walks a civilian. He, he looks a little stunned looking at all the generals. And he said, uh, kind of blurts out, he says, hey, uh, who's in charge here? And, of course, we all thought that was pretty funny. We knew General Abizade was in charge. And he goes up to Abizade and he introduces himself. And he says, sir, I'm Gary Sinise. I'm an actor. I played Lieutenant Dan in the movie Forrest Gump. And, of course, we'd all seen it. It was a magnificent uh, movie, and he did a great job. And he says, I'm here because I want to bring school supplies to the children of Afghanistan. And it was interesting. As Gary went on, he made this impassioned plea about getting a C-130 so he could deliver supplies. And, you know, you can see guys around the room going, doesn't this guy know we're in the middle of a war? But then as he continued to talk, the entire tenor of the room changed. And as I point out in the book, you know, it's easy to get jaded by war. You can become kind of callous to the indifference and the suffering. And then all of a sudden, when you see somebody like a Gary Sinise or others that have compassion for these young kids in Afghanistan that go out of their way uh, to help people, it really kind of reaffirms your humanity. And man, the last thing you want to lose in the middle of a war is your humanity. And, and, and I know you know Gary. I mean, he has gone on. Every time I was at, at Walter Reed or Bethesda, there was Gary Sinise, you know, trying to help soldiers. No fanfare. Uh, he's a remarkable guy. And again, I saw this in a lot of places, people with great compassion. Absolutely. And you talk about uh, some other things, integrity, go back in history, John Adams and the Boston massacre, defending British soldiers in a time of revolution in America. He was their lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and of course, if you listen to the historians, they will tell you that that was a seminal event in American law because it really was about the law. We, we were going to prosecute these British soldiers who were responsible for the Boston Massacre. And, and of course, nobody wanted to raise their hand and say, well, I'll defend them, but Adams did. And, and of course, it changed everything about how we did business as, as a legal system. My mother used to love to tell the story because it was about defending people that you didn't always agree with or that might be on the other side. And of course, Adams wins the, wins the legal battle. Uh, and they are uh, they're set free because it was a, a case of self-defense. But, uh, again, a powerful moment in American history. What about you? Talk about humility. Uh, this is a quote from your book. I think it's from General McChrystal. Coley McCraven, the smartest seal on the, team, on the teams, <laughs> is like saying he's the fastest sumo wrestler in a race. What good is he? He's a Texan <laughs> who can't ride a horse and a Navy guy who can't sail a boat. Basketball, the man's got two and two-inch vertical jump. Have a sense of humor, show some humility. That's what McChrystal was saying, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, as you know, Brian, it's kind of part of the special operations creed. you got to harass people all the time. You don't want them to get an inflated head. And so I talk about the fact that humor is such an important part of these kind of noble qualities. And, you know, I saw humor all the time when you go into the hospitals where these kids have been hit by an IED or, or shot. You know, they'd lost arms or legs or, or they were blast victims. And, and they would make a joke about it. And it was a way of saying, look, you may have beat me in the fight, but I'm not beaten. You know, you're never going to beat me until I kind of lose my sense of humor. So humor just becomes this both, both a sword and a shield. Right. And you always have to be prepared to laugh at yourself. If you're not, you know, if you take yourself too seriously in life, uh, it, it's not good for you and it's not good for the people around you. And people listening right now say, well, I'll never be a Navy SEAL, I'll never do this, well, and I'll never be a famous actor, but be prepared to be special and be a hero. And you hearken back to Lincoln, and I'm up against a break, but as you said, Lincoln once said that I will prepare and someday my chance will come. Out there when you're listening, part of the hero code is pre-think what you're going to do in those situations where you have to step up. Yeah. Well, everybody, the point of the book, uh, Brian, is that 
You don't, as you said, you don't have to be astronauts. You don't have to be actors. Everybody can be a hero. You can learn from the great men and women who have been heroes. And I don't mean great as in notable, the great people that you see, the coaches and the cops on the street and, and the, the soldiers, the sailors, the airmen, Marines, you can learn from these people and it will help you be a bit better person. And I think it will help the people around you. Right. Adam uh, William McRaven, great job. And please make this interview better than the one you do with uh, Chris Wallace because he <laughs> is my rival. The Hero Code uh, is the name of the book. Admiral, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Back in a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com slash path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com slash path. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, and special thanks to Adam McRaven uh, for joining us. You just heard from him. I hope you're able to pick up some things about him. And uh, I always love when he comes back into the news. When he has a book out, then he'll talk about everything. And when he uh, gave me that signed version of his book, and I saw how great it was, I could not wait to have him back on. Did not know we'd be pulling entirely out of Afghanistan and how apropos it would be to have the admiral there who commanded the bin Laden raid and did everything else with special operations in that country uh, available for his opinion. And even though he was going to get involved in politics, clearly he agrees with General Petraeus and so many others. We should not be We should not be pulling out of Afghanistan and expect anything but the Taliban to come back in power. Meanwhile, coming up next, George P. Bush. You know George P., son of Jeb Bush. He's a land commissioner now in Texas. It has not been an easy job, never is, very prestigious there. And he also was in charge of the Alamo exhibit. And now when he wanted to modernize it just a little bit, he got some backlash. He's since fixed that. Now he's been marshalling the big plan to get uh, fossil fuels from natural gas uh, to uh, to oil and gas, uh, to not be sidelined entirely thanks to the Biden administration. I was able to go out to Texas and see him in Midland and talk to him about what is happening on the ground as President Biden immediately made it clear that he did not want drilling on federal land. That really affects Texas, really affects New Mexico. It affects Texas companies located in Texas who are drilling elsewhere around the country. So coming up next, an interview with George P. Bush, maybe the next attorney general of Texas. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade, Joe. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, one of the great interviews to pull back I wanted to bring forward is somebody that's going to really factor into the Republican Party in the future, George P. Bush. Well, so many Bushes, like uh, W, 43, and his dad, Jeb, uh, have problems with the uh, former President Trump. George P. doesn't. He sees a lot of the great things he's done. He's contrasted with what Joe Biden's doing. And he joins us to talk all about that, not only what we're dealing with in terms of natural energy and the people that put him in power as land commissioner in Texas, and hopefully he'll go to bat to keep them in business because it means so much to our country's national security as well as their livelihoods. But he also talked about his political future. Uh, George P. Bush, take a look back. Great to be with you, Brian. Hey, uh, listen, I know you got your hands full now. How have some of these executive orders affected uh, your job and your people in Texas? Well, taking a step back, our state really relies upon oil and gas as about a third of our economy. And if we were our own country, we'd be the ninth largest country in the world. So for for us, and really by any measure, this is uh, an an incredible impact uh, on a lifeblood of our economy that on average pays an oil and gas field worker over $120,000. Uh, the way that this has been done is, you know, without transparency by the stroke of a pen. And so it creates a lot of uncertainty in the business when you're looking at capital outlays for the, the coming years to not know what direction this country is going. Um, and people forget that this industry rescued our economy during the Obama recession uh, of 09, 010, when virtually one of three jobs created across our country was in the oil and gas industry. So Instead of being given a pat on the back and, and thinking about how we create jobs after this pandemic, we're actually slapping this incredible industry in the face and uh, throwing up roadblocks wherever we possibly can and not allowing states like ours to determine the industry's future. And a lot of Texas oil and gas, I have since learned, invest in clean technology, invest in wind. You know, it's not that you guys are anti, uh, you know, it's not that you're anti green uh, uh, green technology, right? That's absolutely right. You know, so people forget Texas is the country's leader in terms of wind energy production. Over 20% of our own power grid is generated through wind and solar is 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 vastly growing as well. But, you know, Brian, this is about the free markets. We don't have incentives where we, like the Department of Energy, slap on um, additional benefits to the renewable energy. This is just strictly a, a free market. And finding the lowest price point for electricity will provide savings to all of our fellow citizens including in Texas. And so that's the way to approach this is a slow transition that's transparent so that all industries involved know the direction instead of just an overnight stroke of the pen. So these are the stats uh, that coming out of Texas. You've lost about 60,000 jobs due to the pandemic because people aren't flying. They're not traveling. Uh, the tourism has fallen and it hurts hospitality, but it, no one's burning oil and gas. It's projected in 2022 you'll lose 120,000 jobs uh, due to the ban on leases, on on federal land, which is now an executive order, and 100,000 are employed as 100,400 employed in the oil and gas industry as of December 2020. So, so many livelihoods are at stake. You worry about some other things. What else do you worry about that's coming down the pike from Washington that affects all those jobs? Well, looking at the Obama playbook, we know that there will be litigation in connection with the Endangered Species Act. So when this was drafted in the late 70s, the intent was to basically list and protect species, but then with science and data, help recover these species and then delist them. And that would be a sign of success, right? 
But since the act was passed, less than 1% of all species that have been listed have been delisted because it's a cottage industry for plaintiff's attorneys throughout the country. Uh, so we've been working during the Trump days and, and now hopefully we can find some agreement in the Congress to reform the sue and settle tactic where plaintiff's attorneys get money. But we think 120 different species will attempt to be listed. This affects national readiness. There's one uh, piece of litigation we've been successful on in connection with the Golden Chief Warbler in Central Texas. If you can believe this, Fort Hood, the largest military installation in our country, has had to shut down some aspects of their preparation because of this listing. So when you're talking about endangered species, but yet endangering national security, you know that this is a, a law that's gone adrift. Uh, but we expect other areas of overreach from the federal government as it relates to waters of the U.S. Treaty, land management, uh, but really the thrust of what they're attacking is the oil and gas industry, and that's where we're going to be fighting in the courts. I want you to hear and tell me if you can relate to what Senator John Kennedy said yesterday on our show up in Louisiana, Cut 36. I believe in all of the above energy policy, uh, wind, solar, uh, geothermal, nuclear, but, but uh, also oil and gas. We can't run the greatest economy in all of human history without oil and gas. And for President Biden and his people to uh, just say, well, we're going to get rid of all of our oil and gas. And, um, and I don't think that circumstance is going to change for a long time. So why, are, why would, would this president intentionally put thousands and thousands of American workers out of work? For, for what? Our, our CO2 emissions are going down. China's are going up. So there's a, forget politics. There's a lack of logic. Yeah, it's bad policy and it's bad politics. So during the campaign, he did say, that he wasn't going to ban hydraulic fracturing when he was campaigning in Pennsylvania because you have the Marcellus Shale there, which employs and has created lucrative opportunities for many blue-collar workers. Uh, in many parts of our country, we call it the blue-collar boom, especially in the oil and gas fields. But when he gets elected, he then allows the environmental left to then take over policy. Um, and as we've talked about, and Senator Kennedy pointed out, it's bad policy, but it's also bad politics because we're going to hold him accountable at the ballot box. So think about all the oil and gas producing states, whether it's red states like Wyoming or blue states, even like New Mexico. New Mexico will face a historic budget shortfall uh, with the Democratic leadership there by agreeing with the Biden policies. And so um, I think it's bad politics in the long run, especially if we're successful in the courthouse, but hold them accountable at the ballot box as well. So you formed the Texas Defense Task Force, right? That's correct. So we decided to formalize what we did during the Obama days by assembling not only attorneys that we have at our agency that do a great job of protecting the 13 million acres that we manage day to day, but bringing in organizations like the Texas Policy, Public Policy Foundation, the Federalist Society, and other conservative-leaning uh, litigators that can help us throughout the country assemble with other Western states and basically be vigilant and, and fight back, not only in the courthouse, but also find solutions with uh, what we hope to be the uh, the new president. But, you know, as has been pointed out on Keystone and the, and the seizure of, of federal leasing on oil and gas activity, the president and his team has refused to sit down with industry and they've refused to take mm -hmm. our calls. Uh, so the only recourse available to us is to take this to the courthouse to work with private industry, ranchers, farmers, landowners that continue to be victimized by federal overreach. So you're going to need private funding in order to get these courts going in order to defend your state and the land in Texas. So we do uh, manage 13 million acres. So for sense of context, that's the size of the state of Indiana. 
We have wind production, solar generation, but predominantly oil and gas. And we generate about a billion a year for public education. So our beneficiaries are the public school kids of the state of Texas. We do have a small legal staff, but we rely upon able pro bono attorneys and other conservative leaning mm -hmm. think tanks throughout the country to help us in these. And we were successful against Obama. We fought back uh, an acquisition or an eminent domain, domain proceeding uh, that was taken on by the Bureau of Land Management. We also delisted successfully a species in central Texas that stopped residential development, one of our fast growing areas of our state. And we intend to fight back on oil and gas diminution of value right. of real property. When you shut down an industry, we have a legal actionable claim against the federal government that you're basically uh, reducing the value of our most trusted asset, and that's our oil and gas minerals. What is the XL pipeline being shelved beside the union jobs that it cost and the people that make the steel that are going to make the pipeline in America? Uh, what does it mean to the people of Texas? As By the way, we're talking to George P. Bush, Texas Land Commissioner. So, you know, people forget that because the, the numbers that we've thrown out there in terms of job losses, those are just direct job losses. That doesn't include the indirect job creation from the oil and gas industry. You know, in the Wall Street Journal, there's a, a great article during the last uh, oil boom that talked about a barber in West Texas that made $150,000 cutting hair for oil and gas workers on the rig. Uh, people forget about the welders. People forget about the carpenters or even Starbucks baristas, uh, baristas that were making uh, 2x what their colleagues would make, say, in Seattle or urban areas throughout our country, just to service the amount of population growth and the dynamism of the economy and the capital investment that comes with it. So, you know, people uh, just don't really appreciate, especially for those that represent coastal areas of our country. And I've never really spent time in the oil and gas uh, areas of our country that for generations have provided a meaningful career that pays over $100,000 on average for uh, a lot of people that are saving money for their kids' tuition. You know, it's amazing, George. Yeah, they don't, but they'll be the first to complain when gas is $3.90 and it used to be $1.25, <laughs> uh, and they'll blame you guys. Uh, they'll get those rich oil companies. But uh, stop me if I'm wrong here. Don't te Doesn't Texas have a lot of refineries? And wasn't that Canadian oil going to be refined in, in Texas? It was, yeah. So the Keystone, the, the component that is yet to be completed was to connect uh, Canada to basically to the Bakken Shale, North Dakota, South Dakota, through Nebraska, and then make its way to the refinery system in Beaumont, Port Arthur, along the Sabine Pass, the border between Texas and Louisiana. So in essence, there will be an effect on job creation in Texas. But think of all the job creation uh, just from the welding and the steel manufacturing. Uh, this is about the best America first policy that you can think of. And that was the Keystone pipeline. Even Obama, uh, though he described some reticence, he didn't issue an executive order stopping construction of the pipeline. Uh, we have four members of our Texas congressional delegation that have stepped forward courageously to say, President Biden, this is not good for our state. Uh, I believe Senator Manchin has already drafted a letter this week as well. So I think there's actually additional support in the Congress to encourage the right. president's team to, to think about this. Don't you think part of leadership and your grandfather is like this uh, and George W. Bush was like this? They, they admit when they're wrong. I mean, what's wrong going, hey, I'm going to reverse this. It's not working out. That's leadership. It's not being perfect. It's admitting, you know what, this is, got da this is going to be too damaging. I think I'm going to pull this back. You know, and, and I just think at 78 years old, you would think that Joe Biden has very little left to prove or play politics. Uh, and, and, and especially in, in your family's case, you guys understand oil and gas. Yeah, we do. I mean, we have a heritage in it. But, you know, going to President Biden, I mean, he campaigned on the idea that he was going to stick up for the working class and for uh, the working man, uh, the blue collar 
of professionals out there. And he's basically through the stroke of a pen shut down the blue collar boom. Uh, these are meaningful jobs that people relied upon that went to college for or got a, a trade certification, whether it was uh, post-secondary ed or, or in high school. And now they're being told that potentially they're out of a job and Makes unable to potentially put food on the table for their family. So, you know, it's more than just ideology. These, these are people's lives that you're affecting. And job creation is what this is all about. Government needs to get out of the way, allow the free markets to play right. and allow education or states to determine a, a policy that's best for its people rather than having a top-down driven approach. Big story in the New York Times today, uh, real quick. Uh, so many people leaving the GOP. 33,000 lost in California, 12,000 lost in Pennsylvania, Arizona, 10,000. In 25 states, 140,000. A lot of the distaste, they say, is over uh, what happened on January 6th. Others, is they see a somewhat a fracturing of the party. They see a separation between Trump and more traditional elements. What is it going to take to get the Republicans back together? I think there's nothing more unifying for our side than Joe Biden's policies. You know, so again, he, he campaigned on this idea that he would be a, a moderate and smooth talking. Um, but what we're finding in the policy side of things is the exact opposite. And so when we get to the midterm congressional elections, I, I think we're going to take the good of the Trump administration that defended working class citizens, the, the good in terms of our foreign policy that didn't talk about intervening in every single crisis abroad. The good is related to holding China accountable, uh, whether it's from an economic perspective or from a national security standpoint. And so I think we have a great message when you look at the fact that they control the White House, the House and the Senate, and they're focusing on an impeachment rather than addressing problems that at least my constituents uh, approach me and, and want, some, want some progress on. Real quick, uh, 30 seconds. Mark Cuban's not playing the national anthem. First professional team not to do it in Texas, by the way, in the country to not play it before a game. What's your reaction? It's insulting. You know, um, I'm patriotic. I firmly believe in the First Amendment, but to completely omit the national anthem, it's insulting to our country. It's unpatriotic. And it's it's definitely a lack of recognition of what this country is about. And that's recognizing those that protected that flag and, and created our Constitution. A special thanks to George P. for helping us out as we talk about energy and gas. Listen, we all use it. We all understand it. But there are very few who make a living to it. And they're really worried about the next generation of people that want to get involved in energy because this big environmental movement that we're looking witnessing around across the country, they're trying to discourage people for doing it for a living. So even though it pays well and is hard work and could be a great career, so many people in colleges and in high schools are being discouraged from doing it. Believe it or not, even in Texas, Arizona, California, and around the country, especially when it comes to offshore drilling, misinformation about what makes uh, good and bad environmental policies. Special thanks to George P. Bush. He's rounding out that resume. He will be a factor in Texas and on the national landscape, in my opinion. When we come back, more on what you need to know about jobs in America under this administration. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. I know there's been a lot of discussion since Friday, since Friday's report, that people are being paid to stay home rather than go to work. Well, we don't see much evidence of that. For many of those folks, unemployment benefits are a lifeline. 
No one should be allowed to game the system. And we'll insist the law is followed, but let's not take our eye off the ball. What does that mean? Uh, and by the way, I don't care what your data says. You talk to people. Maybe I know it's tough as president to actually talk to people. He only works like two or three hours a day, it seems, sadly. But uh, by the way, they put their lid on everything. But if you talk to people, this is beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's exactly what's happening when it comes to jobs. Welcome back, everybody, as we talk about the Memorial Day edition of the Brian Kilmeade Show. But you don't have to go to your barbecue this weekend or talk to some people in the store. Say, ask people, you know, are you able to work? Have you heard people out of a job? Now you have the people that are unemployed, they'll say, listen, they're paying me a ton of money to stay home. You're not going to be rich off of it, but what's the rush to get back, especially if you're a little ticked off, and I don't blame you about what happened with the pandemic. Here's, uh, here's John Taffer. He deals with more restaurants than anyone else. He does bar rescue, but he also has his own, uh, his own series of franchises that he's rolling out, consults so many different restaurants and bars, lives in Las Vegas, knows without hospitality, there is no Las Vegas. Listen to what he said. No, I completely disagree with the president, Brian. Think about this for a moment. The average household has about two and a half people in it. If both of them are unemployed, getting enhanced benefits at $800 a piece, that's $1,600 a week enhanced unemployment benefits. That's $83,000 a year. But the median income in America is only $65,000 a year. Wouldn't you stay home? Yeah, I mean, he asked a question that he knows the answer to. Most people would. And they might even do something on the side. You work as a bar back or you find some way to supplement that income where you get paid cash, dig pools or do things like that. They're a hard work, but a lot of times you can actually get cash for that. And why not scramble? I mean, it's not the most ethical thing to do, but there's nothing ethical about what we're doing now. We're spending on deficit spending. What happened with the pandemic, we shut down our country. In retrospect, when they do a look, that was an overreaction. There's no question about it. They're still overreacting. You have governors who are keeping you and your career hostage and and being hostile to you. And the guys of saying they're looking out for you. So all of a sudden, someone turns around and says, you get unemployment, you get $300 extra. You don't really feel that guilty about it. Well, thanks so much for Alvin McCraven for joining us this hour. It's great to hear from George P. Bush as well. And thanks so much for being, uh, being a listener on Memorial Day. And hopefully, even though your schedule is a little different, obviously, today, hopefully you'll be able to join us uh, along the way, Monday through Friday, as we put out a different show every day. And also, keep in mind, too, when you have to miss it or if you're not in our family of affiliates, BrianKillMeShow.com is the chance to get the podcast. Thanks for listening. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening on this Memorial Day weekend and hope you're at a fine time to get out with your family and get out and have some fun. Meanwhile, this hour, you're going to love it. Uh, I have a chance to talk to Josh Rogan, who wrote that great book about what really happened in China with U.S.-China relations leading up to and through the pandemic. He's also riding the breaking news. So Josh Rogan will be joining us. Uh, He is one of the leading authorities in this country on what's going on. Politicians go to him to find out. His sources are uh, are without... Uh, are beyond reproach. And I think he keeps politics out of it. So he's been a great ally for us. You're going to love this interview. It's important for you to get it. Meanwhile, coming up now will be Dr. Nicole Sapphire. She's got a brand new book out talking about this coronavirus, the politicization of it. We talk to her on a regular basis on what to do, what not to do when it comes to testing the vaccine and handling the symptoms and contact tracing. But how politics really corrupted the entire process. Politics got infected with science, almost like a virus. And Dr. Nicole Sapphire wrote a book about it. Here she is. 
the American people should not be worried or frightened by this. It's a very, very low risk to the United States. It isn't something that the American public needs to worry about or be frightened about because we have ways of preparing, of screening, of people coming in, and we have ways of responding like we did with this one case in Seattle, Washington, who had traveled to China and brought back the infection. 590,000 deaths later, we had a lot to worry about. Now, you and I were surprised by this, but Anthony Fauci shouldn't have been. He knew people of the Wuhan virus. He knows people all around the globe who study this for a living. We don't know what the heck they're talking about. SARS this, MERS this. Oh, it doesn't usually be a problem. It's not usually a problem here. He hops on the Cats Roundtable, John Cassimatidis, who owns our great affiliate WABC, now, and, and they have this, uh, this conversation, and he lets everybody know there's nothing to worry about. Could he be any more wrong? And does he ever acknowledge how wrong he was? Never. That's part of the reason I believed while Dr. Nicole Sapphire wrote her brand new book, you know her as a Fox News medical contributor. Maybe she's your doctor. She's also the author of this book. It's called Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Dr. Sapphire, welcome back to the show. Congratulations on the book. It's out today. Thank you so much, Brian. Happy to be on. Hey, uh, so I thought that would be the perfect setup. That's the beginning of us (laughs) trusting science and being totally let down. Can you bring us back to January of 2020? When that was recorded? Well, yeah, you know, Brian, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. You said a lot of us were surprised, even myself being a physician. But the the one person who's pretty much tasked with um, being able to determine whether or not something is going to be an emergency or not uh, also had it wrong. And so... You know, you take, go back to January, and there wasn't a lot of information coming out. There was a lot of whisperings going on. You had whistleblower accounts out of China. You also had Taiwan and Singapore and some other smaller nearby areas sounding the alarms. But yet it seemed that Dr. Fauci and really the rest of the world were listening to what was coming from China, which now we know is obviously less than forthcoming information. So that put us on our heels, and he mentioned there's a case in Washington, and we were able to handle that, but we weren't. It was beginning to spread. And you have since told me part of the reason was we didn't know this thing called asystematic spread, which means I could have it, I could feel great, but I could also, I could feel great, have it, be spreading it unknowingly. And that's indeed what was happening because China never let us know the nature of this virus. Well, Brian, what I find to be appalling is the fact that China and the World Health Organization, who was just echoing what was coming out of China, was continuously saying there was no sustained human-to-human transmission, meaning, yes, there were clustered cases, but the cases weren't out of control. They were confined to local spread. And so the fact that they were not raising the alarm by saying that there was sustained transmission told people that maybe this isn't going to be that contagious. So, yes, if you find one case, it's not going to be a big deal. But as we have come to now see, everyone infected with SARS-CoV-2 did not display symptoms. So, no, if you just have people doing temperature checks at the airport, that's going to miss like 50 percent of the cases, even more than that, because even the people who get sick, there's the prodrome period where they have no symptoms. So, yes, there was a failure of screening initially. There was a failure in our ability to control it. But again, this all points back to the fact that, yes, there was bad information coming out of China or just no information coming out, but that our experts, our people who are tasked with looking at the information did not warn us. They did not realize. And if they did did realize, they didn't let us know. 
So is that why you put the book together? You could always write a medical book and give a perspective on a certain disease or experience or write about health care reform or Obamacare. But there was something about politics that mixed with medicine that really struck you. In what way? Listen, Brian, any physician can write about, any wellness expert can write about diseases and how to keep your body physically the best um, in strongest shape. But for me, what I saw occur over the last year and a half now was the, uh, the, you know, not only did it result in a failure of government, much of which is unavoidable in such unique disaster scenarios, but the rampant politicization of science from the origin to the simple concept of just face masks and lockdowns just completely divided the country. And it created an entire pandemic in itself of fear and hysteria, a lot of which didn't need to happen. And then you had even more division in the country because people started weaponizing science and cherry-picking the data to fit their narratives. When did you realize that politics is getting in the way of science? Was that after the lockdown? Did it really strike you? Uh, Of course. I mean, first of all, the two weeks to slow the spread. I think that everyone, for the majority of the part, was on with that because there was a crisis at hand. And unfortunately, our inability to test for this virus really cut us off at the knees. And as hospitals were overflowing in the New York area, we were in in a time of crisis. So two weeks to slow the spread made sense. But unfortunately, it wasn't necessarily implemented correctly in the sense that you had people traveling all across the country. You had people now congregating indoors together, which spread the virus even more. And then the inability to remove restrictions when hospitalizations, cases, and deaths all started going down that summer proved that if you are not able to remove restrictions as things get better, people are going to start distrusting them. Thank and then you, you started seeing yeah. Mayor de Blasio out painting Black Lives Matter with the protesters in front of Trump Towers, yet he had the playgrounds with chain, chain links around that so children couldn't go out and play. And so you started to see hypocrisy happening. Yes, you can't do this, but you can do this because it's part of the social justice campaigns. And when you start doing that and you really fit uh, safety and science to fit narratives, you're going to see rebellion, and that's what occurred. Yeah, I mean, if, for example, if there's civil unrest, people, there's a curfew, you go by the curfew until the civil unrest is subsided. I remember dating back to 93 when I was in California. All right, fine. And then when you decide that, you know, if you have cancer, these are things you do to treat the cancer. That's what you do. You're not happy about it, but you get a doctor, you follow the orders. But all of a sudden, if you see other people with the same cancer as you doing something entirely different and living a much more fulfilled life, you go, wait a second, why are they doing this? I thought you told me to do that. And then you find out that maybe that doctor gets an incentive from the cancer center you send me to. Then I lose all trust in the medical profession. That's the analogy I use. But one that's more apropos for the pandemic is masks. In the beginning, we were told one thing, and then they flip-flop all over the place up until they told us to take it off last week. Listen. You can increase your risk of getting it by wearing a mask if you are not a healthcare provider. I believe there will be some very serious consideration about more broadening this recommendation of using masks. We're not there yet. World Health Organization and the CDC have reaffirmed is that they do not recommend the general public wear masks. You don't want to take masks away from the healthcare providers. But don't get a false sense of security that that mask is protecting you exclusively from getting infected. A face barrier 
can actually interrupt the number of virus particles that can go from one person to the other. And they now suggest that the general public consider wearing masks when they're going out in public. Although there appeared to be some contradiction of you were saying this then and why are you saying this now, actually the circumstances have changed. So, I mean, I get angry just hearing that. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Nicole Sapphire, our guest, her book out, Panic Attack Today, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. And I'm telling you right now, people are listening to us and they're squeezing their steering wheel because of the mixed messages and how their life has been altered. Well, Brian, I have to be honest. I break the mask debate down to the most minutiae of the data and science. So if anybody has, wants answers on mask debate, it's in the book. Good. But here's the thing. Just as when we had Dr. Fauci, CDC, WHO saying nobody should be wearing masks in the general public, you go from that to saying everyone needs to be wearing a mask at all times, whether you're indoors, outdoors, whether you're distancing, whether you're not. I mean, it, that was beyond ridiculous. And they're still doing that. Now, Brian, there has been a role. Masks have played a certain role when it comes to this pandemic, but not as big of a role as you'd like to think. Certainly not when you're outdoors walking, should you be wearing a mask or even outdoors dining or just in a group, because as we know, less than 0.1% of transmission of this virus likely occurred outdoors. Yet the CDC still won't say that children can take off their mask outdoors. That is the most preposterous anti-science recommendations that are still occurring. And this is what I'm talking about they put forth these recommendations, these restrictions, and they're having a very difficult time rolling them back. And I don't understand why, because we have ample data showing that they're wrong. I, I feel like you're exasperated, Dr. Sapphire, by your by your industry, by your by your. <laughs> I feel like you're like you. I you feel I even though you're the expert, I feel you your frustration too through this book. Am I right? Oh, I mean. Uh, of course, and that's why I had to write it, because I feel like I have walked on this tightrope for the last year that if I truly do my own research, sifting through the data, come up with my own conclusions, I had to be careful because a lot of my conclusions go against the grain. They go against what popular opinion said. Just like last summer when I said, hey, you know what, an accidental lab leak, that's a very plausible occurrence, given the information that we have out of Wuhan and knowing the, the research that was done. I was criticized by the media. The fact that I continue to say I do not believe children should be, young children should be in face masks, whether they're outdoors. I actually think face masks need to be taken off indoors, too. And I have the data back that up. And so and I also get criticized when I say, hey, why is no one acknowledging natural immunity? Just because you said you acknowledge the reality that natural immunity helps to get to herd immunity, that doesn't make you anti-vax. That just means you re look at the science. And you're referring, of course, to Rand Paul getting criticized because he says, I have the antibodies. I'm not getting vaccinated. Exactly. So I sent a tweet about that. I said, Rand Paul saying that doesn't mean he's anti-vax. It just means that he's actually reading the science. And of course, I get criticized for that. How could you do that? You're a doctor. You have to promote the vaccine. I'm like, of course, anyone who's watched me the last six months, I have encouraged anyone and everyone to get the vaccine that wants it. But just because I also acknowledge natural immunity doesn't make me anti-vax. I want you to hear what Dr. Scott Atlas said last night to Laura, cut 14. I actually think it, it's, uh, I'm not sure it's irreversible, but there's been serious damage done, not just to the politicization of science that we have all seen during this pandemic, but the, the credibility of experts, the seeking out of the truth, and now what seems to be uh, really corruption, uh, if not financial, at least in a moral sense, 
at the leadership of our, were the gems of the United States. The research and the science agencies were, like I said, the envy of the world. So I think there's some serious uh, damage here. These people are not just incompetent. It's worse than that. So that's the sense that maybe they might even be corrupt. Well, there's certainly no incompetence when it comes to Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and many of these other leaders. What else is influencing their decisions and their inability to admit when they're wrong? You know, I don't know. And I'm not going to pretend to know. Um, I, I think that one of Dr. Fauci's biggest errors right now is that he has continuously um, been unable to say, I was wrong. And this is why he continues to put it on. Well, I wasn't I didn't think that you could handle what I was ready to say. And he said that in terms of face masks, in terms of herd immunity. And unfortunately, when you have uh, uh, billions of dollars being given to the medical and academic and scientific industry by the government, you're going to have mm -hmm. some integration of politics and science. And that is going to be the downfall of Science. You talked about the inability to admit he's wrong. You want more proof as if the mask wasn't enough? Listen to Dr. Fauci. Are you still confident that it developed naturally? No, actually, no, I'm not convinced uh, about that. I think that we should continue to investigate what went on in China until we find out to the best of our ability exactly what happened. But what did he say first? The mutations that it took to get to the point where it is now is totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. Okay. Well, so you know, Brian, what's interesting? So in, for my book, I really broke down the sequence. I called every virologist I knew, and I talked about those mutations that were specific to SARS-CoV-2. And yes, while they can occur in nature, they were also being performed in research being done at the Wuhan lab, as well as other labs throughout the world. And so, again, just because there's a suspicion there, it doesn't mean that it's proof. But for him to say that this is absolutely 100 percent is only can occur in nature, he knows that's not true. He knows that's not true. But I think, you know, maybe he just wanted to prevent any sort of conspiracy theories. But right. again, Conspiracy theories aside, you can't neglect reality. Listen, you're a lot more patient with him than I am. I have no respect for him. He has misled and hurt this country, intentionally or not, more than uh, more than you than than he'll ever understand. But your book is helping. Please pick it up. It's called Panic Attack: Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. And when's the special, Doctor Sapphire? The special is going to be, we haven't actually formally announced it, but here it is. But the special will be airing on Fox Nation next Tuesday and on Fox News Channel the following Sunday. Nice. Dr. Sapphire, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. And congratulations. Back in a moment. Questioning everything. It's Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, this this uh, virus that was taken from that cave, it's called RATG. 13 is the closest known genetic relative to SARS-CoV-2. It's probably not the backbone of SARS-CoV-2, but we know that people, researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, had multiple trips to that mine and collected many different viruses, including 
bad coronaviruses, and it's possible and even quite likely um, that there were other viruses, possibly even more closely genetically related um, to SARS-CoV-2. But what's happened? The, uh, the databases from the Wuhan Institute of Virology have vanished. No one has access to them, including this international committee that said they were going to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and, and, uh, and asking questions. And this guy, Peter Danzig, is the only American that is allowed in there. If you look at his feature in 60 Minutes, he said there's nothing there. It didn't happen at the Wuhan lab. But he's the only American the Chinese would let march around because the theory is, I've never met him, but it's circumstantial evidence reveals that this guy is totally sold out to China. The money that, that he gets is from China. So uh, the, the grants given over there is something that is going to be in jeopardy if they come against the Wuhan Institute. So he's never going to say anything. That's not going to stop Jamie Metzl, who was on our show in April and made those startling revelations, and he's been pushing forward. Last night he was on with Tucker, and Tucker uh, rightly said this is the first time we had you on. But you have everything to do with being one of the first people to put up a red flag and say, check out that Wuhan Institute. Tom Cotton was the very first, and he was ripped globally and locally and domestically, not by us. Uh, and we'll talk to Tom Cotton later in the week. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to BrianKilmeade.com. Get Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Information you want, truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. We have repeatedly called for the WHO to, to support an expert-driven evaluation of the pandemic's origins that is free from interference or politicization. Now, there were phase one results that came through. Uh, we were not, uh, during that first phase of the investigation, there was not access to data, there was not information provided. Uh, and now we're hopeful that uh, WHO can move into a more transparent, independent phase two investigation. But they can't. They just did it and weren't happy with their final report. They didn't get the access they were looking for. So I don't know what Jen Psaki was talking about. Josh Rogan, author of Chaos Under Heaven, President uh, Trump, she and the battle for the 21st century. Uh, Josh was doing one very good book, and then it turns into a global pandemic emanating from China, and it turns out into a, a great book that is absolutely required reading if the country really wants to understand what's happening uh, and what kind of pressure we are on the, and threat we are under China. Josh, welcome back. Great to be back with you, Brian. So are you confident the WHO is going to do the investigation Jen Psaki is counting on? You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again and inspecting a different result. And it's not as if the WHO just fumbled the investigation. It's so much worse than that. They hired the best friends of the Wuhan lab to investigate the Wuhan lab. They went to the Wuhan lab for three hours, met their best friends, asked them, did you do it? They said, no. They said, okay, sorry, case closed. And shut up if you dare mention the Wuhan lab leak theory after that. And this is a year wasted, a year gone by. Uh, where the evidence is getting further and further in our rearview mirror and where the WHO has become essentially a, 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 a useful idiot for the Chinese government's attempts to cover up the origin of the coronavirus. And why would they be covering it up if they didn't have something to hide? And, you know, the Biden administration 
uh, is torn internally because they don't know what to do and they don't know what the truth is. Uh, so they've come up with this alibi, which is like, oh, we real. This is a critical national security issue. We hope the WHO does a good job the second time, even though they screwed it up the first time. And it just doesn't make sense. It's hypocrisy at its core. And, you know, that's the problem is that, you know, if, if you really believe that we need to get to the bottom of this and you really believe we need to investigate all the theories because we don't know which theory is right. We need to investigate the natural origin theory and the lab leak theory. Well, then you have to admit to yourself that the WHO can't be entrusted with this because they screwed it up already and they hired the the corrupt and conflict conflicted scientists did the investigation and that said it was extremely unlikely so they've lost their credibility and the only people who can really do this are the u.s government we're the only ones no one else has the tools and the power we just don't have the will we don't have a government that has the will to actually do it right uh, or the will where everyone feels as though the downside would be breaking up relations and economically we're so intertwined where their people are too afraid to pay the price, let alone the military threat that China offers. But Josh, Sunday, the Wall Street Journal did a story saying three researchers got sick with COVID-19-like symptoms in November of 2019 when they told us the first case was the first week in December. Jen Psaki was asked about that, and she said, well, that's, those weren't uh, American reports. Those weren't American witnesses. She just threw, in your words, threw cold water on this instead of trying to grow with this. Being that she's not implicated at all, she's not blocking Joe Biden. Joe Biden's not culpable. So instead of saying, yes, we're very curious, we did take note, why did she take that tact? Right. So first on your question of, like, will investigating the origin of the pandemic upset the Chinese Communist Party? I'm here to tell you it may upset them, okay? And— Guess what? If 580,000 dead Americans is not a good reason to risk upsetting delicate U.S.-China relations, then what is a good reason? I mean, we're talking about a complex relationship, sure, but they're covering up vital scientific information that's impacting our public health. Not just us, by the way. Every human being knows that they're suffering in the pandemic, which is ongoing and raging in most parts of the world, actually, uh, is being exacerbated by the continued, to this day, refusal of the Chinese government to give us basic data, basic science, to tell us what they know. And they won't do it. And it's costing us lives, even today. Okay, that's why it's an urgent national security matter. And that's why we might actually have to risk upsetting them in order to press them to get to the bottom of this. And, you know, when it comes to that W the Wall Street Journal report, here's what I'll say. You know, a lot of that information was already out there. You know, a lot of it was already published in Australia, you know, two months ago. And that's what Saki is talking about. It probably came from the Australians, right? This is their intelligence that came into our intelligence community. And, you know, people inside the Trump administration and the Biden administration, by the way, were like, hey, we should probably take a look at this sick researchers, COVID-like symptoms. But, the, you know, the, the, the problem is that, you know, all this information is leaking out in little tiny bits and it allows people like Jem Psaki to like throw cold water on it and say, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know. We can't make heads or tails of it. And they're ducking the issue. Uh, what they should just do is release all the intelligence that they have. Tell us what they know. What's that? What? Why? You know, what What else do we know about these sick researchers? What were they working on? Were they working on back coronaviruses? That's what some people from the Trump administration say. Isn't that relevant? You know, why are they thwarting all these congressional investigations? I get it. They're Republicans. They don't trust the intentions of Republicans. But I'm here to tell you that just because they're Republicans don't, doesn't mean they don't have some good questions that we got to ask all of our agencies who are working with the U the labs. That means Fauci and the NIH, but not just Fauci. Don't get too concerned about focusing on Fauci. It's DOD and the State Department and USAID and the National Science Foundation, 
all of these American and the Homeland Security Department and the intelligence community were funneling money to something called the Eco Health Alliance, which was funneling money to the Wuhan labs to work on back coronaviruses. And we got to figure all that out. We, we that's going to take some actual effort and some actual commitment by the U.S. government uh, to to do that. Fox confirmed a report that CNN had saying that the Biden team shut down a State Department inquiry that Mike Pompeo had headed up and named the panel looking into a possible link between the lab and the the advent of COVID-19. Uh, was that, as far as you could tell through your sources, Josh Rogan, because it was a Trump thing? Yeah, no, I know everything about that story. And uh, some of it is covered in my book, Chaos Under Heaven. Uh, but what happened was that the actually the Trump administration had lots of different COVID origin investigations. They weren't all necessarily linked up with each other. And sometimes the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. But the people inside the State Department, the bureaucrats, they didn't like the Trump people. So as soon as the Trump people were gone, this particular investigation, they just quashed it, right? And because the Biden people came in and they didn't know what was what, and there was like no real transition, because you remember what happened during the transition, uh, they didn't figure it out. So they're just like, okay, forget it. That's a Trump thing. Let's just... Uh, put that to the side. But, you know, it, whether or not you like Trump or Pompeo, there's a lot of work that they did on this that is good work. And that doesn't mean I'm endorsing the lab leak theory. We don't know. You know, I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. But they tried to get to right. the bottom of some of it. And so, yeah, we shouldn't be shutting down investigations. We should be continuing them. You know, we talk about our allies and you talk heavily about President Trump, his foreign policy and his allies. I want bilateral trade deals. I don't want multilateral trade deals. Hence, the TPP went by the boards. Uh, and he, he would look at he would challenge our allies as well as our enemies on a regular basis. Joe Biden was supposed to be the one to get the world united, get everybody together. If you got everybody together, uh, these every nation has a reason to want to find out the answer to this and right. hold China culpable, that would be the wedge. And it's really the only wedge, Josh, right? Can, do you see any push for that? I don't. All I right. see is we want the WHO and international experts to look into it. Right. I mean, remember what happened when Australia tried to start their own origin investigation? The Chinese government boycotted Australian beef and wine, plunging their economy into further crisis in the middle of a pandemic. So we know that other countries want to get to the bottom of this because they know the same thing that we know, that it's the only way to prevent the next pandemic. You've got to figure out this one to prevent the next one. And so it's everybody has an interest in doing that, except for the Chinese government. And all these other countries are not strong enough to stand up to the Chinese government. We are, if we want to be, if we choose to be, and we're just too scared of our own politics and worried about how will our tweets from March 2020 will look in the light of day if this turns out to be true, or whatever navel-gazing that the media is doing right now, trying to trip over themselves, pretending that they were objective a year ago, and now they're just learning. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares about the narrative. People care about getting to the bottom of the crisis so that we can prevent the next one. And I think if the Biden administration decided, which it has not yet decided to do, to, to actually lead that effort and not palm it off to the WHO, which Biden people privately admit to me they know is going to be a dead end. They know it's, it's, it's a fool's errand because the WHO is not set up for that. It's not because they're not nice people. It's because they don't have the power to do it. But we do. And if the Biden administration would lead, if America would lead, I assure you the rest of the world would follow. Absolutely. Um, so I want you to hear what Senator Tom Cotton said January 22nd on this show, January 22nd, 2020. Cut 10. Brian, it's, there's still a lot unknown, but here's what we do know. The Chinese Communist Party has once again been caught red-handed covering up, suppressing and censoring a serious public health risk, which could increasingly be a global public health, health risk. For weeks, 
uh, China did not come clean about the coronavirus that they first said was only being passed from animals to human in a uh, seafood market in Wuhan in China. But now we know, uh, because they finally come clean to an extent, not fully, that it is increasingly being passed from person to person. We had our first U.S. confirmed U.S. case happen just in the last couple days, and it is spreading around the globe. This is very much like what happened with SARS about 15 years ago, and China has learned nothing, and they've concealed almost everything. I mean, I can't give him enough credit. I mean, that he was you, you ended know, up being scaringly right. Exactly, exactly. And he was tarred as a conspiracy theorist and all the rest. And, you know, that's a Not by you. And, no, but, the, I mean, by, like, the vast Everybody majority else. of the— of the media, and there were some people who were uh, dissenters, but they were also attacked as conspiracy theorists or racists or worse. And you know, if you listen to that now in April 2021, it sounds super reasonable, and a, a lot of people will have a lot of excuses for why they didn't think it was reasonable back then. Maybe you hated Trump, and yeah. maybe you, the scientists who were the best friends of the lab intentionally misled reporters. Actually, not maybe. That's exactly what happened. That's why it happened. The best friends of the lab, uh, the American scientists who were covering their own butts misled a bunch of reporters who were happy to run with that narrative because it also uh, made Trump look foolish and made Tom Cotton look foolish, and that's what a lot of reporters like to do. And they got took. They got took by these sources, and the fact-checkers got took by the same exact sources. That's why you see all the fact-checkers scrambling over themselves to uncheck their facts and explain why their wrong fact-check was right, and now it's wrong, but it's still they're still right somehow. You know what I mean? It's, right. it's crazy. Nobody cares, okay? Forget about why, what, you know— it, like I don't, I'm, I don't expect any apologies. Tom Cotton's not going to get any apologies. It doesn't matter. We, we are where we are. We need to investigate both theories. We need to figure this out. That means investigating the lab leak theory. And regardless of what you thought a year ago, regardless of whether you call, called Tom Cotton a name, you know he's a senator. He could take it. It comes with the territory. That's forget about that. The point is we've got to investigate this theory. We got to do it now. We're going to need the Biden administration's help. Right, and the people that were credible early should be the ones you go to now. I think that is the point. Or just the do people who yeah. don't have conflicts of interest. How about that? Let's start how about there. that people without clear. And, and this makes me think that Anthony Fauci has a legitimate conflict of interest. Cut four. Yeah, he has. We uh, had a big scare with SARS-CoV-1 back in 2002, 2003, where that particular virus unquestionably went from a bat to an intermediate host. It would have been almost a, a dereliction of our duty if we didn't study this. And the only way you can study these things is you've got to go where the action is. So we had a modest collaboration with very respectable Chinese uh, uh, scientists. But it wasn't gain of function, and these weren't crazy guys with uh, in in uh, tie dye t shirts. So, Echo Health yeah. Alliance, the nonprofit, received three point seven million dollars in U.S. grant money, and six hundred thousand of that went to the Wuhan Institute. So, is this part of the cover up? I don't want to be embarrassed yeah. to have my fingerprints on any dollars that went to an institute that yeah. may, in fact, have poisoned the world. Yeah, this is really important, and I'm glad you brought this up because there's a lot of talk about Fauci and the NIH and that contract to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. What listeners have to understand is that that's one tiny fraction of the U.S. taxpayer dollars that were going to the, these Wuhan labs, not just the, this lab, a whole bunch of labs. And that came through USAID, the National Science Foundation, the Defense Department, 
the Homeland Security Department, the intelligence community, and many other agencies. So when Fauci gives his very lawyerly denial, this particular contract didn't fund this research, that's true or accurate on its face, but it's misleading because it obscures the bigger picture, which is that we had lots and lots of collaborations with these Wuhan labs on this risky virus research. And it doesn't matter if Fauci calls it gain of function or says it's not gain of function. It was right. risky and we didn't keep an eye on it. And if that's how the pandemic broke out, then Fauci's going to have to answer a lot of tough questions, no matter what he called it. And this whole thing over the definition of gain of function research is a red herring because it, it, if it's risky research and if it, the Chinese, it's, in other words, it doesn't matter if we funded the, I don't, I don't think the, 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 what we're going to find out is that we funded the research that caused the pandemic. What we're going to find out is that we collaborated a lot with these Chinese labs and then they had another side of the lab, the side they didn't tell us about. Right, Josh, that. Josh, do you realize, I'm just listening to you talk and going through your book, do you realize the Russian investigation and this China's pandemic uh, investigation have one thing in common? They are both exploiting, some unintentionally with China, the division in our country. If we could ever unite, well, the, the Russian thing would have been two, uh, a two-day story had both sides not seen, uh, had, had the Democrats not seen opportunity, I'm going to prove that he didn't legitimately get elected. Those Facebook well, yeah, ads did it. And then everyone gets divided for two and a half years and distracted. And now right. the same thing well, with China. We should all agree well, that we're suffering from the same virus, and it wasn't our fault. But we see political danger and opportunity in the same light. Brian, you're hitting on something that's really important here that doesn't get talked about enough. I think the parallel that I see between the Russia investigation and, and this is that it's getting super politicized, and that's really bad because it helps, it harms our ability to find the truth. And, you know, the Russia investigation got politicized to the point we could never untangle it. But here's the good news. We can still untangle this one. You know, we still have a shared interest, right? We don't have to argue about Trump because he's not president. So we can just take the politics out of this and come together on the shared need to figure out how we got into this mess so that we can prevent the next right. pandemic, so we can prevent the next three million deaths which is really right. something that shouldn't be political. And the good news is the origin question is not actually a political question. It's right. not even a scientific question. It's a forensic question. Something bad happened in China. We need to figure out what it is. We need to do that right now. Right. Josh Rogan, thanks so much. Little by little, we'll get the story. You sat down with Joe Rogan, a three-hour podcast that also tells a great story. And your book gives you the competency to allowing you to take this uh, to the next level. Chaos Under Heaven's the name of it. Josh, thanks again. Thank you for being on the story, Brian. You got it. one 866 408 Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. I feel for Americans watching the Olympics because all there is on American TV when the Olympics is happening is Americans. You don't even realize that there's like whole other countries involved in the Olympics. When I was in New York in 2012, it was the London Olympics. You would have thought it was happening in Boston. The way that <laughs> you only televise the ones that you're going to win. It's almost state propaganda. It's incredible. I did not know that. I never thought about that. And that was James Corden, of course, living in England, talking about the Olympics, which are very much in the news because it looks like Japan is getting close to canceling them. Which would be crazy. I mean, Corden had a, a few jokes on the Olympics, which were funny. But it's true. I mean, right? We, they, they hold everything for later in the evening so everyone can watch it. Right. 
And well, I think th- I think they feel pressure to air most of this stuff live now, but we don't air a lot. You know, we're not doing the biathlon. No. You know, so unless we think we're going to win. I know. Well, now with the yeah, streaming and all of the channels, they do air a little bit more live, but there's right. many other jokes on the Olympics that you might hear throughout the show. So I'm kind of torn, too, about because Beijing has the next Olympics after Japan. And now everyone's saying, how could we possibly go there when millions of Muslims are being kept in concentration camps and they just poison the world? But if we leave China, you know they're not coming here when we host the Olympics in Los Angeles. And maybe the Olympics are done after that. Maybe forever. They got to pick one country, put it in Greece, enough rotating. That's actually a good idea. I'm not surprised. Really? It's, it's, of you. course you have a good idea, yeah, Brian. And then we have to have the winter lake uh, someplace cold. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, this is Memorial Day. Your time to salute those who gave their lives to, to fighting for this country, defending the country, not just in this generation, when we see what happened with Persian Gulf War One, when you see what happened with... Uh, Afghanistan, and then, of course, in Iraq, sustained uh, war on terror conflicts you know, all over Africa, stuff that's seen and unseen. That we're seeing, well, all those men and women that have given their lives, uh, that's what Memorial Day is about. And hopefully we'll find time between reconnecting with your family in a post-pandemic world with most states are in. I think it's important for us to take stock. So uh, this segment, we're going to, as we look at this Memorial Day special, bring back Tim Pool. Tim Pool is one of the most popular podcasters in the country. Interesting personal story. He was one of the first Occupy Wall Streeters. He was a Bernie Sanders supporter. But he is outraged about what big tech is doing, outraged about what our history is doing, outraged about overall cancel culture like so many comedians. So Tim Pool joined me. And we just talked about what was going on in America, how to stop it, how to change it, how to observe it, and how not to take part in it. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show, talking to Tim Pool. So, Tim, first off, you kind of burst on the scene where Occupy Wall Street protests back in 2011. Oh, yeah. A while back. What what did you do there? So I began live streaming. I had a mobile phone. It was the advent of, you know, for like the first time you could just use a mobile phone to broadcast to the world. It caught a lot of journalists off guard being able to watch in real time what was happening on the ground during these protests. And I guess the big moment for me was when I did a 22-hour-long broadcast in New York. People were running to bring me batteries because this was when the police had started clearing the park out. I think for a lot of people in America, they had not realized this technology was, you know, right here. And for me, I was just, you know, some guy who showed up and said, hey, look what I can do. And I did it. And then from there, it just, you know, we rapidly expanded uh, in terms of technology and social media and independent broadcasting. And, you know, here we are now, I guess. Wow. Fusion TV was one of your employers. Vice is one of your employers. How would you characterize your views? Um, you know, it's almost impossible to determine what it even means to be left, right, liberal, conservative these days. Because yep. I'm from Chicago. I've always been. You know, I voted for Obama in 2008. I was really let down on the war issue. And I've always considered myself to be fairly liberal. My family is life, you know, they're all lifelong Democrats. But now when you look to the Democratic Party, it's unrecognizable. When I talk to my friends who are still Democrat voters, they seem to be, I don't want to be, it may sound biased, but uninformed. And then when I talk to my friends who have either rejected the Democratic Party or decided to vote for Trump, they seem to know a bit more about what's going on. They seem to be more concerned. So, yeah, I mean, and who knows? We know that a lot of people, a lot of Republicans don't want any part of Trump. 
a lot live yeah, and die with them. And a lot of Democrats, I just saw the Democratic delegation walked out in Nevada because the leadership went over to the Democratic Socialists. They said, I cannot handle this. I'm out of here. Yeah, I think that's that, that that to me is scary, actually, because we're, we're seeing polarization. The, the, the Democratic Socialists, many of which are overly you know woke into this critical theory stuff, which I think is horrifying. It's one of the things that really scares me about the Democratic Party today. And you see the Republican Party has become the party of Trump. And these people are often at each other's throats. So as the, the Democratic establishment can't you know, they can't maintain any kind of moderate ideology. And the left is just coming in and taking ground. I think. Politics in this country is going to start getting way more extreme, and I'm really worried about you know violence and, and riots. You know, we've got we've got the Chauvin trial now in, in Minneapolis, which people are already assuming no matter what happens, there's going to be more leftist riots. That's the stuff that freaks me out, and makes me worried about you know where we're headed as a country. Yeah, I do hope this, and I have a different theory. My hope is that people are going to look at the what's happened in San Francisco, where they're financing at sixty-five thousand dollars a year per tent for the homeless population to thrive, and they're seeing what's happening in California with the illegal immigrants come one, come all. And I think some are seeing with the cancel culture, most almost all of it comes from the left, and now bleeding to other countries, from our country, and I think a lot of people are saying. Count me out. Count me out yeah, of this no. craziness. I agree. And I, and I hope more people wake up. You know, just the other day, we, we have this big story, I guess, Pepe Le Pew, a cartoon character is now being removed. He, they canceled him. He's fired from his job. He's not even a real creature. He's not even a real person. He's a cartoon character. They got rid of him because, you know, it's, it's, it's offensive, I guess. But even Whoopi Goldberg on The View said, I don't understand what they're doing. Why are they doing this? Stop erasing things. And I'm like, yes. Like, I, I think it's fine to criticize, you know, uh, art from the past if you think it was offensive, but to just start banning and purging and erasing. And, you know, look, I think it's silly to talk about the cartoon characters, to be completely honest, or Dr. Seuss, but it's, it's grains of sand making a heap. They keep chipping away. And I think the bigger issue was the tearing down of all these statues. But I will say in regards to the, the cartoon character stuff, at least you're now seeing people like Whoopi Goldberg and, you know, I, I guess liberals finally realizing, hey, they're taking your cartoons away. They're taking your children's books. And it's actually starting to get at least some of them to realize cancel culture is not going to stop. And they're going to eventually cancel you and they're going to take your job. Bill Maher is saying the same exact thing. And don't tell me he's a, a right wing zealot. He's anything but. So I'm talking with Tim Poole now. So, Tim, just off my first soundbite that I got from Governor DeSantis, he saw what Big Tech did to the president in particular and others since. And he's saying, and by the way, that even uh, alarmed Angela Merkel and other leaders around the world. They basically said you're not allowed on social media. These competitors united to cancel the president. So he cannot get on yep. Twitter. He's releasing statements now. And he came out with a program that says if you start deplatforming people, you are now susceptible to legal action. Do you think that's where this, other states have to do this? Yes. And I'll tell you what's really funny is, like I said, I've always considered myself fairly, fairly liberal. I've always been you know, on the side of we've got, we got to regulate these big corporations that are you know, violating the rights of people. And here I am still in the same place like, wow, it's really bad that tech oligarchs in Silicon Valley with you know, a hyper-partisan political bias are trying to damage our, our, democracy, our democratic institutions, our republic, banning their political opponents. So when I hear someone like Ron DeSantis or I hear about what's going on in Texas with Paxton, you know, because he's, he's going up against Twitter, I'm like, good. I don't care if you're a conservative or, or a Democrat or Republican, whatever. I've always been saying we should not allow massive monopolies to destroy our rights. So I think what DeSantis came out and said and what he's been doing, a lot of people are saying it's very presidential. You know, I think Trump will still be the guy in 2024. But I got to say, I'm, I'm excited to see 
that he's taking a stand because very few have, have done enough. And I even got friends who are like not even conservatives who are like, I want to live in Florida now. And so I'm just yeah. laughing like, all right, man. And Texas. <laughs> you like the guy, you know? Right. And um, so I'm going to continue to uh, play this. So you, I was just reading in your, little, in your background a little bit. People advice, your former employer described you as a lefty or progressive or for your anti-corporate politics, but others describe you as right-wing, which is, I think is a good thing, because you describe yourself as a social liberal uh, who uh, supported Bernie Sanders. Did you support Sanders in 2016? I, re- I really, really did, and, he, and I believe he let me down. But I'll, I'll clarify this, too. Go, if you go back and look at what Bernie was saying, especially at, at like, Vox.com, that's V-O-X, they were, they were criticizing him because him uh, Bernie and Trump shared policies on foreign trade, trade. And, and you know bringing factories back. Now I think Bernie sold out, and so within like a you know it, it was it was even during the debates I was like what's he doing, but I was I was uh, well, I, I shouldn't say young but younger very idealistic <laughs> and very much like Bernie seems to be the guy, and like many people you know I didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016, but I certainly wasn't going to vote for Hillary and I'm certainly not going to vote for Joe Biden. So, you know, Bernie sort of changed. My views have definitely changed quite a bit. I've become especially big on the Second Amendment. Uh, but that, that, that's where I was. I was, I was uh, uh, you know, like, that, like I said, Vice called me a lefty. And then the, it, the funny thing is they call me right wing. But it's like maybe it's just I'm kind of in the middle, leaning a little to the left. Politics in this country has gotten so insane. You're either far left or far right or whatever. And people can't really see that regular Americans are kind of in the middle on most of these issues. I would believe so. And I also think that when it comes to taking down the statues, America's was for our history. Everybody knew yeah. when with fourth grade when they were telling you about George Washington. They told us about slaves in 1976. I'm older than you. I watched you know, I was in grade school when Roots was out. And they had five days of brutality, the way they were treated by early Americans. I, who the hell watched that and thought they soft-pedaled slavery? Not a person. So now all of a sudden, like, well, we got to take down Lincoln was not pro-black enough. So we got to take him down and his name off grammar schools. If that is not the craziest thing you've heard, I don't know what is. Among the people, they're canceling our past. Tulsi Gabbard, a Democrat, Hawaii, cut 41. Let's look down the path and say, okay, well, where does this cancel culture lead us? You see the final expression of cancel culture in Islamist terrorist groups like uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda, who, who uh, basically go and behead those who are in, they deem to be infidels or, or heretics in order to silence them, in order to protect others from being misled by, by those heretical ideas in, in the eyes of an ISIS or, or uh, al-Qaeda. She's basically not welcome in the Democratic Party anymore, and she's not even yeah. a centrist. I, I supported Tulsi. She, I was su- such a big fan. Um, I, I donated to her campaign. I was cheering for her when she, you know, when she dropped that bomb on Kamala Harris on the debate stage, and it, and it really was because I, you know, I, like I said, I've always been, you know, fairly left. I, I do disagree with Tulsi on, on certain issues, nuclear sure. power, uh, Second Amendment, for instance. Which it was like one of the last shining lights that the Democratic Party had to offer, in my opinion. And they they excised her. They they booted her out. They insulted insulted her. They smeared her. And she's right about this cancel culture stuff. They're, they're, they're just, it's, it's like 1984. You know, they, 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 they change the street names. They take down all the art, all the statues. And I, I worry because, you know, I'm 35. I just, you know, my birthday was the other day. And I'm old enough to have seen the statues. I'm old enough to have read the history. But what about the kids today who are not being taught this stuff in schools, who will not see the history, and then will be doomed to repeat it because they forgot it? 
And the thing is, uh, we're talking to Tim Pool now, independent journalist, commentator with a very successful uh, podcast called Tim Pool's uh, Daily Show. So, so Tim, what we were always learned about America is we really changed the world with our philosophy. From the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution, we have to live up to the Constitution. And along the way is a process of growth. I mean, they, we had the 1860, we had a war that was won by the North in 1865, and we needed further improvement, mainly because of the assassination of Lincoln. We would have been a lot better off had he been able to combine with the Ulysses S. Grant and Frederick Douglass and flooded teachers and housing down to the South and made the transition. We'd have a better chance of the transition. But because we didn't do it right, we had the 1960s, and we continue to make progress. But somehow along the way, it wasn't fast enough. We're not equal yeah. enough. And now this generation— feels as though our past is not good enough for them. What the hell did they do that makes our past not worthy of their study? Well, it's, it's, it's actually, I blame the parents. You know, I think it's the easy way to look at it. It's these kids who weren't taught why it's so important to, you know, to understand our, our, our history. I've been around the world. When I worked for Vice, I've been to all over. I've been in uh, the Middle East. I've been in, in, in Europe, in Brazil, at these major conflicts and these major crises. And, I, and, and it's this amazing feeling when you go to these countries and you witness, you know, uh, civil unrest, fighting, revolution. You see the anger in these people's eyes, and you come back to America and realize how amazing this country is. I was in Brazil. People in Brazil don't have a right to free speech. You can go to you can go to jail for telling a joke. I come back to America, and you can flick off the president. I'm like, wow, we are a truly, you know, great nation. <laughs> and the ideas that that were created in the American Revolution traveled around the world. It kind of woke people up that you don't have to just bend the knee to these, these autocrats, these kings, yep. that it's the government is for, of, by the people. And now what's scary is the, the, the things that are getting removed, statues. I don't, I don't care what the statue represents or what it is. It's a piece of history. You might not like the person the statue is of, but it's a reminder so that every day when you walk past that, you see a statue of Lincoln and the slave being freed. You ask yourself, what does that mean? Why is it here? And then there will be an, an elder who will say, well, the statue was put here to commemorate that we as a country decided slavery was wrong and we fought to end it and we won. They removed that statue. So these kids are going to grow up never seeing or hearing this, and it makes me worry. They're going to bring back the bad ideas that we got rid of, and we try to we try to remember why we got rid of them. So what bothers me most is America was exporting this culture, this constitution. We'd help out. We do write huge checks around the world, and we still represent the, um, the world's best hope of freedom. But now we're exporting this woke culture. And Douglas Murray joined me now for is uh, a deep thinker writer who just wrote uh, Madness of Crowds. He joined me from England today about Pierce Morgan getting out, losing his job because he disagreed with Meghan Markle and thought she lied. And he talked about what's happening in America that's now happening there. Cut 44. People like me who have always been admiring and friendly towards America are starting to worry about this. American culture wars seem to now be going around the world, and they are epitomized in the form of Meghan Markle, now the Duchess of Sussex. And now we see the example of Piers Morgan simply saying something that a lot of people in Britain think, like a lot of people around the world, which is that Meghan Markle was at the very least exaggerating, most likely just lying in a range of things she said in her Oprah Winfrey interview. And for that, now Piers Morgan has lost his job. He's right, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. Meghan Markle apparently said that she was mentally ill. She had suicidal thoughts and was seeking help, and she was rejected. And Piers Morgan said, I don't believe that for a minute. 
and I, I agree with Pierce. I, I, I feel like if even a, a child off the street went to someone in the royal family and said, I'm feeling you know, ill and need help, they would help this person. I mean, anybody would. It's just a crazy story. But then Piers Morgan, apparently 41,000 people complained, and then he walks off the job. What's crazy to me is that it's, it's, you've got this American actress who marries into the royal family, and now they're it's like, are they going to cancel the monarchy in the U.K.? Is that how crazy the culture war has gotten? Well, not until people take a stand. But the problem is if corporate America says, I don't want to hear from Douglas Murray or Tim Pool, you're going to have a hard time getting a book deal. If it's going to have a hard time maybe getting the word out, if the podcast would carry you. And if people at Fox decide that they don't want uh, me to talk a certain way, I'm out. So I don't have my own conglomerate. I don't have my own Twitter. Uh, nobody has their own publishing company that I know. So we could have great ideas, and you could stand up to the cancel culture. But where's Parler today? They stood up, and the, and the conglomerates got together and silenced them. Tim, we got to do this again. Congrats. How do we get your podcast? Uh, it's on iTunes, Spotify, at the Tim Pool Daily Show. And I have another show. It's called Timcast IRL. Go get him, Tim. Great talking to you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. In Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Like you say, no one can be woke enough. You know, I'm torn because I like a warrior for a good cause, but I'm really into tactics. You're not going to nag people into behaving right in a way that's, you know, in fact, if if you continue with this tone, even if you're right, You'll be very hard to hear. Right. Dave Chappelle trying to be somewhat politically correct as a cutting-edge comedian, African-American. He understands the things in society he's not happy with, but he understands what we all understand. It's gone way too far, and soon they're going to be targeting you just because you're not famous or on stage as a comedian or singer uh, or a politician doesn't mean it's not going to happen at work, doesn't mean it's not going to happen in your neighborhood if we continue with these impossible standards. And somebody, I'm, I'm purposely doing this without people that are known as Republicans or Democrats because they're all speaking out across all mediums. Joe Rogan, the most popular podcaster in the country, to me, he's a, leans a little bit right, said this about woke culture. Cut six. You can never be woke enough. That's the problem. It keeps going. It keeps right. going further and further and further down the line. And if you get to the point where you capitulate, where you agree to all these demands, it'll eventually get to straight white men are not allowed to talk. Right. Because it's your privilege to express yourself when other people of color have been silenced throughout history. We just got to be nice to each other, man. And th there's a lot of people that are taking advantage of this weirdness in our culture, and then that becomes their thing. Their thing is calling people out for their privilege, calling people out for their position. Because it's their one shot, you especially know, so in social media, to act tough. And be that tough guy that speaks out. But you sit there in oblivion. You don't matter. And suddenly you do matter because that tweet is condemned or gone viral. Coming up next, James Lindsay on this and so much more. Uh, you listen to Brian Kilmeade Show, Memorial Day edition. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one -on -one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News.
From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. At American Colleges, if you're a faculty member and you want more pay or a promotion, you must publish articles. Since the journals supposedly have high standards, some researchers were thrilled to get an email from a journal that said, I have now closely considered the revisions of your manuscript, Dog Park. And <laughs> They're laughing because they just pulled off a hope. And will recommend its publication in gender, place, and culture. <laughs> They'd sent so-called research to 20 prominent journals in women and gender studies, race studies, sexuality, fat, and queer studies for this journal of social work. We rewrote a section of Mein Kampf as intersectional feminism, and this journal has accepted it. Seven of their crazy papers got in. And one that claims that dog-humping incidents can be taken as evidence of rape culture has been officially honored as excellent scholarship. Thinking, oh my God, we got a paper in, and it's probably the craziest thing we wrote. And they had to study the genitals of 100,000 dogs, they said. 10,000, I'm sorry, I overstated it. Uh, so that was a report that John Stossel just shows that there's a lot of prestige in getting in these magazines, and they were getting in these magazines by putting in faulty research because it was the theme in which they wanted. It's the new woke culture. Now, that was done a couple of years ago, but it's more in vogue today. James Lindsay knows all that. He's a mathematician, expert in critical race theory, founder of NewDiscourses.com, and author of the books, Cynical Theories and How to Have Impossible Conversations. James, welcome to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. James, does it surprise you things like that got through? With if you if you start with the right premise, do you get published or you get recognized? Oh, yeah. At the time, we were pretty sure it would be possible, but it was absolutely shocking, the stuff that we wrote, because we were trying to be as crazy as possible. I mean, literally looking at dog sex and examining thousands of dog genitals uh, and sending that off and having it considered excellent scholarship, rewriting a chapter of Mein Kampf and seeing a social work journal pick that up. It's Hitler. And in turn, did you get retro a retribution? Do you get praise? We got kind of a you know polarized reaction. Obviously, the people in the universities were mostly mad at us. They didn't thank us for showing this corruption that's going on so that they could clean house. Meanwhile, people who uh, are outside of the university, mostly right-wing people, noticed – they knew this problem was happening. They knew it was there, and they were grateful for the evidence, and they were very positive. So it was a very polarized response. How do we get here, James? Who, who wants us to be more feminine? Who wants us to be more woke? Uh, I'll be real blunt, the communists. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little more complicated than that, but this has been – this is sort of like the end point of a century-long – uh, incursion into Western civilization, Western culture to try to turn it over from within. And they seem to be succeeding because I don't know anybody who embraces this agenda. I mean, when I'm watching Bill Maher speak out and say, stop with the cancel culture, when I'm watching comedians say, uh, I no longer want to be part of the Democratic Party because I don't even know where they're coming at with this agenda uh, because everyone's being canceled, fired, released, boycotted. Uh, who's left? Um. A lot of people are not left. They're all leaving. Uh, I even have seen now threads of people who were very defensive of Biden going into the election who are now already saying they're absolutely done with Biden. They're done with the Democratic Party. They're never going to vote Democrat again because of just all of this crazy stuff getting pushed in so quickly and so hard, which uh, personally I predicted. I tried to tell people I got ended up having to go on television in three countries to explain myself after I said I was going to vote for Trump uh, back in October. But it was, it was, in my opinion, a necessary move, and we made a big mistake. 
the country did. I don't think there's any question, um, but I felt that way all along. I think Joe Biden shot. I, I don't know whose agenda this is, but you couldn't have gone. You couldn't have gone more out of your way to destroy the country. You might as well be China. You're getting rid of oil and gas. You're opening up our borders. You're running up our deficit in an, in an intolerable way, a way in which Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary for Barack Obama, that says it's unsustainable. You wonder who's steering this ship. And you believe this is something that's been going on for a while? No, it's certainly been going on for a while. The attempt to take over the universities, like with this academic literature, is a deliberate plan that was hatched in the 1960s by leftist radicals who are very famous, whose names aren't well known today, like Herbert Marcuse. Uh, it's his logic that we live in today. The logic is called repressive tolerance. There is an essay written in 1965 by the same guy, Herbert Marcuse, saying that the movements from the left must be tolerated, even if they're violent movements from the right must not be tolerated. They must be censored. They must even be pre-censored so that the thoughts can never even enter their heads. That's the logic we live in. This is a long-running project. Um, this is this isn't just coming out of the grass. Uh, you mentioned China, by the way. They are funding this. They they are also on their social media accounts stoking it. They know what they're doing. They see the weapon. Um, lots of money goes from CCP organizations into uh, funding outlets that put stuff like this out. I could name a big one for you that was pretty crucial last year, which is the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard. You should look into how that was created, how it was funded. Largest single donation ever given to Harvard University was given by a man named Ronnie Chan, who has not the same Chan as T.H. Chan, but uh, they're related, and he's got deep ties to CCP. This is there is a lot of Chinese money behind this. Yeah, so you have to wonder where it's going because they are they have this they are trumpeting their masculinity and their aggression, and they're here on our military is trumpeting we should be more inclusive. We're talking about gutting uh, any type of. Um, you know, uh, aberrant behavior within our military instead of addressing it with our enemies. I never remember anything like that. It's almost as if our Pentagon's got timid. Uh, they've got timid. They've also, this is the same kind of thing. That plan that I talked about in the 1960s from Marcusa has deeper roots to a guy named Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci was probably the inspiration for Mao's project. Uh, and this got hatched. And his, his goal, Gramsci's goal was to infiltrate existing institutions and create a new culture within them from the inside by bringing in bureaucrats and experts who are going to change the organizational culture to turn it into something else. So it's far worse than that our military has gotten timid. Our military has been uh, colonized by people who have an anti-America, anti-West agenda. And that whole politically correctness within it, uh, it's hard to explain. I never remember anything like that uh, in my in my lifetime where we seem to be focusing on our own enemies. And we're talking more about white supremacy in America than we're talking about ISIS in the Middle East. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, the targets for this this, organi or this this operation is within. It is the target Western civilization at its very uh, pillars that hold it up, and it's to knock those things down. So the targets are going to be uh, Western civilization, and they're going to be to hit the, the points that are weakest, where people are going to get the most inflamed. So everything has to be white supremacy now, because everybody rightly rejects the idea of white supremacy. So they're going to hit us in our weakest spot, and they're doing it not from the outside, but from within. And if you want to create chaos in America, how about defunding the police? Isn't that what we're seeing yeah, now? Yeah, exactly. Defunding the police is yet another one of these programs. These people don't actually want there to be fewer police. They want there to be fewer police that they don't control. So they want to make it so that the police forces are established and dictated by them. So, you know, we'll have all these rehires and they're going to mandate all kinds of diversity training and all this implicit.
think we might have lost James. Is he back? Am I back? Oh, yeah, you're back. We just lost you for a second. They want this diversity training to fund the police. They just want the uh, compliant police or less police that are going to be sued like we have here now with uh, with with immunity gone for a police officer in New York City. Yeah. Uh, or you can look, for example, if they can't get it with the police, uh, you, you see that taken away in New York City. But if you can't get that with the police, you can look at what's happening in Portland. You can look at what's happening in San Francisco under the district attorney, uh, Kesa Boudin, who refuses to charge people who are, are leftist activists who commit crimes. So, you know, they're they're demoralizing the citizenry. They're demoralizing the police. The stuff that's going on in the military is I've heard directly from whistleblowers inside the military who reached out to me and said they're just demoralizing our, our armed forces and our even our special forces now. Uh, this extremism stand down is all based in this. Uh, it's really it's a very dangerous situation, and most people don't realize that we are at kind of the make or break point of an attempted coup of the United States that's happening from within. How does the pandemic fit into all this? To me, it seems to have been an accelerant into, in it. Yeah, it, it created a lot of opportunity to, to stress people out, to get people to be disconnected from one another, to make people work from home, to connect digitally where we act differently, we see each other differently, we're not as warm, people are meaner, and we're more stressed out, more anxious, more uh, psychologically unwell because of all of these different features, the fear in particular. And then to constantly hit that point again and again and again, that weak point of America is, oh, look at all of the racial imbalances. Look how this is racially unfair. We need now health equity. We need now racial justice and health. We need to name racism as a public health emergency and take special powers to, to, uh, to deal with that. It all added up into a lot of opportunity to push this ideology, this narrative-driven ideology, into every corner and every facet of life. You know, it's pretty amazing, too, is that now you have – uh, you see race in everything. They want to put this critical race theory into the curriculum in schools. They say uh, studies have revealed last week in the Washington Post that kids as young as three months old have exhibited signs of superiority and supremacy at three months old. Yeah, that's a that's a one of the things that these people do, as with our dog sex paper, uh, is they take existing things and do complete distortions of them for activist purposes. The study that they are quoting for this three-month-old thing, I looked it up, I read it. They actually don't tell you when they report that, that they only use white children, and they had them look at pictures of, of people with different races on television screens while their mothers held them. So they had absolutely no way to screen out, is it that the child preferentially looks slightly longer at faces that match the what their mother's face looks like in a kind of blurry three-month-old way? The study is absolutely poor. It is absolutely can, – you cannot draw the conclusions they draw from it. But they draw those conclusions anyway because they have no obligation to the truth. So would they you, only have obligation to their narrative. So, uh, so James Lindsay, as you look at critical race theory, where I would, I would say you're an expert, uh, how do you fight back from that? I mean, we're watching this happen now in Loudoun County in Virginia where some of these parents, they tried to, to uh, put them on a blacklist and try to get rid of their kids, and they're fighting back, and they're mocking uh, their opponents. Instead of running in fear of being called a racist, they're mocking that fact. They think that's the key. Yeah, I mean, that is one tool. They don't like to be mocked. They also don't have the truth on their side. They also don't like to be resisted. So you have to resist them. You have to stand up. You have to speak up. You have to get lawyers involved and bring lawsuits, uh, especially in schools. What seems to be an avenue that works is bringing lawsuits about compelled speech. They're compelling kids to admit to their racism, for example, or to talk about privilege and their privileged status. Yeah, these these kinds of things have to be done. People are going to have to speak up about this. They're going to have to say, no, racism is wrong 
always, whether it's done by people that we traditionally think of as racist 50 years ago, or whether it's by these new racists, these neo-racists using critical race theory to divide America, divide, divide our children, divide our societies, and even the military by race and to make race relevant to everything in a poisonous way. And by the way, there's a there's a story out today that I want you to take a look at. Captain Underpants, which is a children's book, obviously, being pulled for passive racism. Here is uh, Helen Raleigh um, on the woke mob threatening children's education. It's really alarming to see how similar what's happening, what's happening in China versus what's happening here. As I was growing up, there were very few literatures, children's literature to read, and many of them were dull, colorless. They were focused on political indoctrination. Although in today's America, we are not quite there yet, but you are saying this, you know, it's already happening that the canceling Dr. Seuss book, and also we are indoctrinating children from very young age about to teach them that their, the color of the skin determines their life. Those are all very scary trends. So the book follows a pair of friends who travel uh, through time where they meet a martial arts instructor who teaches them Kung Fu, and they learn principles found in Chinese philosophy. However, its publisher, Scholastic, has decided to remove the book from its website, stop processing orders for it and seeking a return for an inventory. They go on to say, uh, the author, I hope that you, my readers, will forgive me and learn from my mistake that even unintentional and passive stereotypes and racism are harmful to everyone. I apologize and pledge to do better. What for well, doing um, what? That's that's kind of standard. Here's the first thing you people need to know when you run into this. You don't apologize like that. That's the that's your death your death now right there. You lost. Do not apologize. That's the goal of this movement is to put people on their heels, make them apologize for things that weren't wrong in the first place. And once you do, you feel guilty. You're you're in a defensive position. You can't stand up and resist this. So don't apologize for stuff that you shouldn't apologize for. That's number one. Number two, this is this has a name. You know, the the little clip we heard is correct. This is this mirrors Maoist China. This is a Maoist program. They called it destroying the four olds, the Suju, uh, and that was one of his main projects: get rid of the old habits, the old customs, the old culture, the old ways of thinking in society. Uproot them all. Throw them all away. In German, they called this Alphaben der Kultur. This is a long-standing Marxist program to to uproot the existing culture and replace it with mm. their new Marxist agenda. And let me add this. Why don't we take down our history, mock George Washington, take Lincoln off your grammar school, uh, make sure Jefferson comes out of William and Mary, and uh, also apologize for putting Jefferson at the University of Virginia. Uh, try to take Frederick Douglass's statue out of Rochester where he lived most of his free life. So all this stuff is taking place exactly like you said it, and we got to become aware of it and take action and stop being passive. Stop thinking this is going to go away because it won't. James Lindsay, That's thanks exactly so much. Right. Yep, thank you. You got him. You can follow him on Twitter, at Conceptual James. Uh, back in a moment. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I see a lot of unfunny comedians. I see unfunny TV shows. I see unfunny award shows. I see unfunny movies. Because no one's, everybody's scared to like, you know, make a move. You know, and that's not a place to be. You know, we should have the right to fail. Right. Because fa failure Failure is a part of art, you know what I mean? And right. it's like it's the ultimate cancel, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, you know, mm -hmm. but now you know you got a place where people are scared to talk. That's not you know, especially in America, you're scared to talk. Ah, but you know, that's what people want. 
you know, got to make adjustments. And I'm thinking about, too, Chris uh, Chris Rock is him and uh, Dave Chappelle, the number one or two African-American comedians, maybe flat out best comedians in the country. But they do cutting-edge stuff. It's not Jerry Seinfeld where it's observational humor. I'm not saying one's funny than the next, but it's just not. It's not necessarily reacting to the news. It's looking deeper into things. And if you offend somebody and all of a sudden you get canceled, well, funny thing, I don't think they'll ever get canceled. They're too popular. They can go in the middle of a park, charge a dollar, and they're going to make money. But uh, when you have to apologize, I think Eddie Murphy was apologizing for a stand-up that he did in the 1980s. I mean, it's impossible to live up to that standard. So Christy Alley... Uh, Kirstie Alley, she was uh, joined Tucker Carlson. And she says, listen, I'm a conservative. I, I voted for Obama twice, but I also voted for Trump twice. Now none of my friends talk to me. And she doesn't seem to really care. Cut eight. You can be cooking meth and sleeping with hookers. Yeah. But as long as apparently you didn't vote for Trump. So it's, you know, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone a bit in the with, with the whole concept of it. Because, you know, an example is on Twitter, I had... Many celebrities followed me, and now I think like three follow me. They actually took you off the list? They yeah. unfollowed you? Oh, yeah. And I am going, I'm the same person. You know, I'm the girl who voted for Obama twice. And I'm like, oh, so you liked me when I voted for Obama, and now you're this? And it sort of had, it's made me have to rethink weirdly my whole friendships. Yeah. I mean, so many other people relate to that that weren't on Cheers. So Kirstie Alley uh, was uh, replaced Shelley Long on Cheers. You may not know that, but if you're ever going to look up a series that withstands the test of time, I actually think it's that. But uh, Kirstie Alley said that Judge Abateau, who is a, uh, a very successful producer, was stand-up comedian, came out and said, I always like Shelley Long better. I'm like, was, is that even necessary, or could you be more juvenile than that? Because she voted for, for Donald Trump? You're that mad at her? It's crazy. But I like the fact that she's not afraid to come out. My hope is she has enough money because it's going to be very hard for her to get hired. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. This is Memorial Day edition. Keep it here. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.